When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Points Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap with Mike Donahue. Mike, how are you? Uh, pretty stoked, Andy. Cubs are uh, 10 days into the season and still have not been under 500. That's a feather in our cap. Not until tomorrow. Oh, come on. Pirates come to town. Yeah. Stretch this out a little longer. Oh, I don't think you knew this. On, uh, on the recording this on Wednesday night and the uh, Cubs... Uh, they're in a rain delay with the Rays. I don't think they're ever going to resume the game. They're nope. Lose. Um, Boog Shambi, during the telecast, was talking about how the 1982 Cubs only used 15 pitchers in the entire I season. I saw that. And you know there's no way he knew that other than the fact that he clearly listens to remember this crap. We talked about it like three weeks ago. So Well, my, my thought right, – Thank you, Boog. credit us next time you use one of our facts on the air. It would be nice. Well, my thought was that it was some PA that dug that up, who also like listens to uh, the show. Taylor. But then he he covered his tracks because the point we made up. Oh, you you would have brought that up in eighty because the first time you brought it up was we did nineteen eighty a few weeks earlier. That was, four, that was even more stark. That was twelve, and that was one under the thirteen. It was topical because of Scott Service complaining. Uh, but it's almost something we should, we should probably check every time we do an eighties now because it is kind of hilarious to compare it. But you did when we did eighty two a few weeks ago. We probably even did it for eighty six. You tallied up the number of uh, uh, starters. So yeah, it was funny to see. Uh, something like that appear on the uh, broadcast tonight. Well, I mean, it, when we were kids, pitching staffs were always 10 guys. Yeah. Like at any given it time. Like a, it was like a big deal if a team yeah. had an 11th pitcher. 11th, yeah. And now, well, must be a double the morons think they need like 20 of them. <sighs> I know. And they still, you know, uh, Stroman was struggling today, and they're like, well, he's probably going to get need some mornings on him. His bullpen is taxed. So he's got 14 guys now. <laughs> really? And also, that's when eating it means like uh, giving up five runs in five innings. Which... I, don't you, I don't know if you saw Dallas Keuchel in game one of the uh, White Sox uh, doubleheader today. But he I heard the White Sox he got blown he out. He didn't make it out of the second inning, and Tony let him wear ten runs. <laughs> wow. Ten earned runs. Tim Anderson made uh, three errors and flipped off the crowd. So <laughs> Did he really? Literally? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good, the Guardian crowd? Good day for the Sox. The Sox got swept in a doubleheader, and their all-star Timmy gave the crowd. I confess to enjoying watching him play. I wish he didn't play for the Sox. I'm disappointed that he would let those morons get to him, uh, but whatever. I think it's weird that Jason Benetti, like during action, simply refers to him as Tim. Not T.A.? Well, or just like, t- he never calls him Tim Anderson, you mean? No, he's just like, there's a ground ball to Tim. Oh. And you're like, uh, no, that's some names, like if it's Javi, that's different. For some reason, like Tim, like, no, how about right. Anderson? Really, it just doesn't sound right. I mean, the most one of the most annoying examples of that is uh, my my good friend Bill Simmons. Um, for some reason, whenever he talks about Chris Paul, just calls him Chris, as if they are best friends. That's that's really. And it's like, okay, there's a million fucking Chris's. Right. Just use his name so we know who you're talking about, Mister Familiar. 
but uh, I would still be inclined to think of Chris Tucker before Chris Paul. I but maybe I'm dated, but that's an incredibly common I mean, it's name. Different. It's like you know, really if you're Seiya Suzuki, you can call you Seiya. That's <laughs> right. probably fine. But yeah. It's just, well, even it's weird to just hear a a very a super common one American syllable <laughs> first yeah. name. Doesn't it's like yeah. ah, that just seems strange. Well, Jason Benetti, they say he's one of the best and the well, brightest. I, like him. I think he's good. I mean, I don't, and I have to admit, I will never hear him actually doing a full Sox game because I won't watch one. I only hear it on like clips. So yeah, he call, rarely does it, and I just catch it all the time. He calls a good game. I, he, I, he, I have zero interest in that team, so I. They're not a bad team. No, they're not. I guess. I'll and they're fun to watch. Yeah, I got too. Yeah, we. I think we both have too much baggage. But I will say, Benetti calls a good game. No, Zach Zaidman, but no. uh, then again, who, who is? So. Uh, okay, so anyway, we are uh, about to uh, spin the wheel of crap. See what we land on. Last week was um, the eighty six. Oh yeah, eighty six. Right. It was the worst. Another eighty six Cubs. Ed Lynch, number 37. Yeah, we have, as predicted, as well as uh, the law of averages would dictate, we have finally are diving into the decade of the 80s. Three out of the last four have uh, all taken place. Still plenty more of that uh, came from kids. Yeah, well, it's going to be tough. We can do it, but it's going to be tough to hit the 80s because two of the 80s that are still on the wheel are off limits yep. this week. Can't do yep. 85 or 87. Yep. So that leaves 81, 83. And 88. Oh, 87. Oof. No, can't do 87. 88. Well, yeah, we haven't done 84 either. Oh, and 84. That's right. The, the, the big That's like the last big one that we have. Yeah. Hoping that one holds out for a little bit. For a long summer night, maybe. All right. I'm going to share this so everybody can hear the sound effect. They wouldn't, wouldn't want to miss that. I can't see it either, but maybe that's maybe that's a new wrinkle. No, I just surp- su- surprise me. There it is. I hadn't shared it. What sayest thou, wheel? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, what, five quick things about 1981. Uh, unlike parts of the 79 and 80 season, this would be an entire full season uh, in which the Cubs were managed by Joey Almalfitano, mm. somehow shaking off the interim label. Um, I'll say that 80, uh, 81 was the other year in the 80s in which the Cubs failed to have a pitcher uh, win 10 games. But, of course, uh, and that's fact two, but, of course, fact three was the season itself was uh, – um, broken down into a, I guess, two halves in what amounted to about a 110 game schedule. So Cubs probably wouldn't have been the only team that didn't fail to win 10 games. Uh, it was the first year of my favorite Cub, Leon Durham, having been dealt for uh, for Bruce Souter, uh, and it was the last year in which the Cubs were owned by uh, the Wrigley family, which would be a uh, an ownership that would have lasted, I would say off the top of my head, about 60 some odd years and uh, five pennants, but none for the previous 36 seasons. 
really uh, was a season that for years until 1994, really, I felt it was the worst individual season in my lifetime. Although I will say that having done this, perhaps I didn't appreciate how God awful 1980 was the preceding preceding year, but you know, we've got two back-to-back seasons. My first two seasons really as a Cubs fan and uh, shit, if that didn't deter me, nothing would, but there wasn't a whole lot of, a whole lot of sunshine in 1981. The uh, the eighty one Cubs only played a hundred and three games. Is that right? Thirty eight and sixty five. Is that one hundred three? Nine. That would be five and eight. It is one hundred and three games. So they, they missed two months. A, they got off to a tremendous start. Um, red hot, you might say. They uh, they were one and ten. Uh, they got to uh, three and seventeen. They won. They went, finally won their tenth game. It was almost June, <laughs> Saturday, May thirtieth. They were ten and thirty-two. So much like the uh, nineteen ninety-four. You know, I remember right. the ninety-four Cubs. I remember actively rooting for the strike just to make uh, it all end. I'm sure I would have. The uh, eight-year-old me was probably. Well, I, no, That's, I wasn't doing that. I wanted. I didn't care. I just wanted to. Play. No, it was sad and weird, and not to have baseball that summer. Didn't matter how shitty the Cubs were, but honestly, you're right. I didn't even draw that comparison to '94 because they were both truncated seasons. But in fact, they were seasons. If ever you were to wish for a season to be truncated uh, as a Cubs fan, those are two seasons right here. Uh, two seasons right there. Uh, but again, yeah, we're kids though, and it was. It was. It was. It was odd. You know, I think we were, you know, you and I were probably both playing Little League Baseball. We're into it. Like I said, I'm following this team by hook or by crook. doesn't matter how that Jerry Martin's leading the team the year before with like 23 homers and the any magic from 79 was gone. Like, no, I'm, I'm on this. But so it was sad not to see the company. It was exciting when they came back. I remember they played the Mets in the first game back. I think Mike Scott was pitching for the Mets. I think uh, we were – my dad was off of work. We were like went to the water park and the Cubs were on and all was good again. And it was also kind of funny because they were so god-awful. But what they decided, this was like a, what, a 45-day uh, interruption maybe? It had about two months probably because they played 103 games. They missed 60. They missed about two months of the schedule. But the solution in order to proceed within the season, because, you know, they played, unlike 94, which happened in August and just wiped out the end of the season, this happened, uh, this strike occurred in June. So there was this collection of games, and then they they go to the bargaining table, and Marvin Miller and, you know, Bowie Kuhn are going back and forth. And when it finally got resolved, one of the practical solutions was to start over uh, crown the as champion all of the division leaders uh, who were leading their division at the time of the strike, and they would automatically enter a uh, you know a makeshift divisional round of the playoffs in October. They're already in the playoffs, but now we're starting fresh, and here we are in what like uh, early August, and we're going to have a, another you know not quite a, the same number of games, but another sort of a half season, and off we go. So the joke was. Hey, as shitty as the Cubs were in the first half, we can still make the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. The Cubs played on they played on June 11th, and then not again until August 10th. So it's a little actually, so just short of two months. Um, the best part of the two half thing was the team that it's completely screwed. 
The St. Louis Cardinals had the best overall record in the National League East. They were 59 and 43 for the season, two games ahead of the Expos. Unfortunately for the Cardinals, they finished in second place in both halves and did not make the playoffs. They finished a game and a half behind the Phillies in the first half and a half game behind the Expos in the second. And they didn't bother to make up a half game. And uh, they did not go to the playoffs. So screw them. Well, tough break there, Mike Shannon and the rest of you. That's a, that's a fun fest. So, hey, that's another good reason, right? Kind of like in 94 where the White Sox seemed to have a – seemed poised to make a legitimate run uh, at, a, at, a, at a pennant in 1994, only to have uh, their own owner help yeah. conspire to pull the rug out from under them. But, you know. Yeah, that would have been the, the um, 80 Cardinals were uh... – a lot of the 82 Cardinals, obviously. Daryl Porter, Keith Hernandez, Tom Hur, Gary Templeton was still at short. Ozzie Smith was in San Diego. Ken Oberkfell. Uh, so Ozzie's was playing for him. Ozzie's first year was 81. Is that is that what you're saying, then? Yeah. He, he was not on the 1980 Cardinals? He was on the 80 Cardinals. Uh, All right. So he, he'd be in 81. 80, and then he, he get, Ober, uh, Yeah, it, it sounds about right. Cardinals. He did? So Ozzy's oh, no, first year they won it all? Yeah, 81. 81. Why was I saying 80? Yeah, the 81 Cardinals. So th- that they made the move after that, I guess. So after the strike season, they swapped shortstops. So and then Ozzy year, won a World Series in his first year with the Cardinals. Yeah, great. So wait, I, 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 I cut out for a sec. Uh, Ozzy was acquired for Templeton after for the, the 82 season. season. Ozzy won... Well, As he won a World Series in his first year with the Cardinals, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Was there anybody else in that trade? Well, know. and Oberkfell used to be their second baseman, and they moved him to third. I think when they got rid of the great Ken Reitz, and they Tommy Hur got called up. So. It was. Uh, As he was just the missing piece. December tenth, nineteen eighty-one. Gary Templeton and Sixto Lescano to the and a player named later to the to the Padres for Steve Mura, Ozzie Smith, and a player named later. Whitey. Al Olmstead was the uh, player named later that the Cardinals got, and Luis De Leon was the uh, player named later that the not to Padres be confused got. with Jose De Leon. Luis was another pitcher in the National League around the same time. He was a reliever. Um, yeah, I think I feel like the Cardinals and Padres. Yeah, he was small. So you would not you would not confuse him with Jose. He was not small. Um, yeah, Ozzy got the better end of that deal. So that was after eighty one. So, but it, so in eighty one, Whitey Herzog leads a team that has the best record in the NL East and and doesn't get to go to the playoffs. Uh, so they get screwed. But uh, it didn't matter for the Cubs. The Cubs are in disarray. We've already we've covered it pretty well in 1980 that after the six decades of ownership, they were just, they were completely checked out. You know, you had like three phases of Wrigley ownership. The first phase, William Wrigley Jr., who you know really kind of built the gum company and loved baseball and like hired the right people and like was that was the four pennant winners between 29 and 38, and he died suddenly right towards the end of that. 
And then his handpicked general manager, Bill Vex Sr., dies shortly after that. So this, you know, this thing that they had built was sort of in flux. And, and is it just as the fates would have it, William Wrigley Jr.'s son, PK, was just an oddball, enigmatic not interested in baseball so much. He was interested in Wrigley Field. He did help maintain the park. God bless him. He put all the games on all the channels in Chicago. He did things that inadvertently helped the Cubs brand, but they were uh, they never applied any meaningful resources. But for a brief period in the 60s when you know, they cultivated Lou Brock and Ron Sano and Billy Williams and, 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 and you know, actually had a brief, bright period that still ended in bitter failure and then pk wrigley finally after three decades of odd management passes away and his son's even less interested and then his widow dies and he was just burdened by the whole inheritance tax and at meanwhile just it's an absolute shit show on the field and uh they lose 98 games in 1980 and 81 they just you know they they just decide Joy Amalfitano replaced Herman Franks late in 79, and then he was like the perennial third base interim manager guy, and he goes right back to third base when they hire Preston Gomez, and then after they fire Preston right away, they they give the interim job back to Joey, and then they, they were so disinterested that coming into this 81 season, they were just like, nah, just let Joey manage the team. What could, you know, we're I mean, checked out. I mean, nobody else wanted it. They offered is it, it absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is. Our, I got it a is, guy another I, line about some white walls. I really don't think that the franchise itself ever has had such a nadir as it did uh, at the end of the 1981 season, just from every angle, like on the team, in the front office, in uh, ownership, with the ballpark was crumbling, the neighborhood was shit. It was uh, – you know, the, it would be hard to imagine the as unusual and frustrating as the trajectory has been since 1981 to have actually mapped it out ahead of time because uh, they were kind of a dead franchise, so frankly. What you're saying is 1981 was like you had to be a moron if that was the year you decided to become a Cubs fan. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it, takes, it takes a few to raise this fan base, like you know. If you were eight years old and that was the year you went to your first game. You well, made hey, a horrible life decision at eight, and the one that you'll never be able to. It's a hair. Like I said, I'm just almost. Life. I'm just literally one year older than you. 1980 was my first full season. They were just as bad. I, and again, though, I was a little bit younger, so in my head, I've already felt 81 was worse. Probably because that false hope of that second start of the season. Cause it was like, Oh my God, this team is terrible. Oh, there's no baseball. Oh, they're coming back. Hey, maybe my, they can make the playoffs after all. Well, oh, they the still suck. So in the first half, uh, the time of the strike, they were, they had the worst record in baseball. They were 15 and 37. That's a 288 winning percentage. <laughs> after uh, 19, almost two months. That's a uh, 62 Mets territory. That's a hundred lost uh, trajectory. Um, Easily. But in the second half, they were red hot. They were much better. They were uh, 23 and 28. They were only five under, and they finished They finished sixth in the first half, and they rocketed all the way to fifth in the second half. The Pirates bottomed out. Okay. And, uh, the Pirates went. Pirates just two years removed from a world championship. Yeah. That's right, kids. The, the Pirates were Pittsburgh 25 Pirates. and 23 before the strike. Five and a half games out of first, and they yep. went twenty-one and thirty-three in the second half. Nine and a half games out of first. I think they, Willie Stargell was still playing, and he was really. It in. They they didn't come back from the strike. 
No. Um, in fact, the, they Cubs, do the surge that the Cubs had in the second half meant that they only had the second worst record in baseball at the end of the season. The Toronto Blue Jays uh, were worse. The Cubs had a 369 winning percentage. The Blue Jays uh, had a 349 winning percentage. And as you may recall, in 1982, the Cubs had the first overall pick in the draft. And the reason for that is the most baseball thing ever. Because the leagues were still treated as separate, they alternated. Yep. So it, that was the National League's turn in 1982 to pick first. <laughs> Right. So the Cubs had the so, first pick. The Blue Jays, who had a worse record, had the second pick instead. So the Cubs t- took Sean Dunstan, and the Blue Jays took Augie Schmidt from the University of New Orleans. Which we brought that up, certainly, because we always seem to cover drafts. We we, we brought that up in uh, 82. So I actually didn't know that the Cubs – I did know that there was that oddball rule because they had the same thing for playoffs and World Series for years. And, they, and hosting the All-Star game. They alternated that every year, too. Right. Okay. So that I was aware of. I didn't know that 81 fell on a year that it was going to be the National League. I just assumed the Cubs did, in fact, have the worst record in baseball because they were so bad. And I'm also a little bit stupefied by the fact that as awful as this team has been for years and years, that I do think there was one season since then, Andy, maybe, where the Cubs did have the worst record in baseball, but it fell on the American League year. And they didn't get the was pick. The well, that, did they have a second pick? Well, who, we could probably had, call who there's. Was that the year they had to pick David Greenwood instead of Magic Johnson? No, actually, I, I right. Thank you. I I, I know that's bullshit because I don't think offhand the Cubs have ever had the second round second pick in the draft. I think prior prior was a third. Luis Montanez might have been a third. Patterson was maybe a third, but I don't know if we ever had a second or for so scratch that. But uh, well, but you're by right. The t- by, the, by that time, it was you had. To, that was they weren't alternating anymore. I don't know when. I thought it was more recently. I thought it was more recently than even uh, was like when when interleague came in because that would have been ninety four. Well, that was ninety seven, but prior is drafted in 01. Right. And my I don't think they isn't. were. I think he had to earn it on the field. Um, okay, amazingly, the Cubs haven't. Two years later, it would um, it would really burn the Seattle Mariners because the they ended up with the worst record in baseball, but the Mets. Got to pick first. And the Mets took the immortal Sean Abner from Mechanicsburg High School. And the Mariners had to settle for Bill Swift, University of Maine. The Cubs picked third, and they took Drew Hall. Remember Drew Hall? This is 84? Yeah. Hey, Bill Bill Swift was a 20-game winner on Dusty's first Giants yeah, team Bill in 93 with John, Bur- with John Burkett when they won 103 games. Players picked after the Cubs picked Drew Hall. Include Corey Greg Snyder. Maddox, Corey yeah, Snyder. Wait, 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 the Cubs. Yeah, but the Cubs. You no, know, they at least got him. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. right. I'm sorry. No, I I'm talking about guys the Cubs could have picked in that '84 draft. Yeah. Corey Snyder, uh, Eric Pappas, who did pitch for the Cubs. We time. talked about him. Uh, Jay Bell. He caught for the Cubs. I think. Mark McGuire, Shane Mack, Odeby McDowell. I loved Odeby McDowell just because his name is Odeby. <laughs> Trying to commit these. Terry uh, Mulholland many... went 24. 84 draft. I'm trying to commit as many of these as I can to memory for when we do 84. Yeah, there's Norm Charlton, 28th to the Expos. Nasty boy. Greg Maddox, 31st to the Cubs. Pretty good draft. Yeah. Tom Glavin, 47th to the Barbs. 
Marvin Freeman. There was a game where Marvin Freeman and Kevin Foster both started against each other, and they homered off each other. Wow. I don't know what we're talking about, the 84 draft. In well, you know, I guess well, you can round it up because the one draft we haven't talked about was 81. I want to say, was that Joe Carter? Or was Joe Carter drafted in 1980? Since we're in the 81 oh, season. That was the like, Cubs' second round pick again. They had the second pick. And it was Joe Carter. In 1981? Carter. It was. All right. So, so that hey, that meant that they, they should have had the, the first pick. They should have had the first pick. It was Mike Moore. Of the Mariners, so that didn't. Who matter. who had a serviceable big league career? The White Sox had the seventh pick. They took Daryl Boston. I remember Daryl Boston. Everybody remembers Daryl Boston. Uh, um, Dick Schofield went third. Matt Williams drafted by the. That can't, that can't be the same Matt Williams. He went or he already went to college. Or wait, not if he's a first round. This is a different guy. This was a pitcher named Matt Williams. Okay. Um, Ron Darling. Okay. Went to Harvard. Yale. Steve Lyons went 19th to the Red Sox. Psycho. Played every position. Cubs in in the second round took Darren Jackson. Okay. In 81. So he was not a Dallas Green pick. I have to correct myself. I, I had suggested in a previous podcast that Darren Jackson was yet another at least mediocre major leaguer that Dallas Green had at least was a nice little run here in this in the second round of uh mike gallego mark gubiza mark langston and then some guy named kevin torvey and then frank viola wow that's three pretty good starting pitchers and four there are some hall of very hall of very good there viola and langston were two like contemporary excellent american league pitchers the 58th pick the third round the san diego padres took tony quinn yeah how about that? Out of San Diego State, So the Cubs right? passed him three times. Good job. Oh, we thought he was going to play basketball. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, really? Have you this is good. Dave Cohn went in the third round. <laughs> he wasn't even David. He was just, ah, oh, just call me Dave. The Royals, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah, they gave up on him. That was to the Mets' benefit. Mm, there's a Doug Davis, but it's not the Doug Davis that... It could have been though. I know, but oh, okay. I'm, I'm saying because those soft tossing lefties can't last forever. It uh, seems. Mickey Tettleton went in the fifth round to the A's. Oh, Cheerio or what was his? Uh, Fruit Loops. Was that his nickname? Yeah, that's right. Mickey that's Tettleton all the time, right? Something like that. Yeah, he had yeah. a batting stance. He also had a son who played against NIU in the MAC championship game. He was the quarterback. I want to say for. Uh, would be maybe Kent State. Could be wrong oh, there. But Mick, Mickey Tuttleton's kid. Um, so there's a there's the 125th for you. pick in the fifth uh, the the fifth round 125th pick John Franco by the Dodgers. Does that mean he went back to? Did he ever well, get traded to the Mets or he, he came, the Reds? He, no, he, he came up with the Reds. Yeah, he maybe he must have gone back for his senior year at St. John's. Let's see. Yeah, he was traded for Randy Myers, I think. Our guy, our guy, Randy Myers. He may have been drafted in 81 because Norm Charlton was. He got all, almost all the nasty boys. No, he got we haven't heard Rob, so he Rob must have got traded to the Reds. Pro- traded. Okay. Let's see. That's about it. For Mike Pagliarulo in the sixth round. Pags. Brian Clutterbuck. 
the Brewers in the seventh round. I vaguely remember that name, remember only because name. of the name. Uh, hey, Mark McGuire got drafted in this draft, too. Eighth round by the Expos. He was listed as a pitcher first baseman from Laverne, California, before he went to... And he went to Southern Cal instead, and then got drafted. Oh, he was drafted out of Southern Cal by the Expos? No, he was still went to college because he was on the 84 Olympics. He got yeah. a top no, space bar. Yeah, I didn't say he went... Sorry. He got drafted and then me, went bang. Didn't mean to jump all over you there. Uh, um, hey, Marvin Freeman got drafted again, too. I forgot wow. he went to, he went to uh, Chicago Vocational. But so Kevin Foster, so all right, so Marvin Freeman and Kevin Foster are both Chicago guys because Kevin Foster's dad was a CTA bus driver. So the oddity of two African-American pitchers homering off each other, both hailing from Chicago. Um, Somebody called Bill James. That's uh, that's got to be the odds of that. Okay, and the last one here, um, ninth round, 233rd pick. New York Yankees took first baseman. Fred McGriff. Wow. That's a good pick. I mean, as much as I loathe Fred McGriff and his time with the Cubs, uh, he could hit the ball when he was interested. I wonder who they traded him for. This is when uh, the Yankees kept stepping on their own dick. Well, Steinbrenner would, you know, fixate on a veteran and he wouldn't give a shit which prospects he bullied his general manager into trading. Um, Gene Michael, the aforementioned Gene Michael at, at times, right? He got traded a year later with Dave Collins, Mike Morgan, and Cash to the Blue Jays for Tom Dodd and Dale Murray. I remember Dale Murray. Not Dale Murphy. Dale Murray. I just remember from this Tops card. Him, he and Barry Bonnell, just two nondescript white Blue Jays. Yeah, he was just a, just a like a middle reliever. Oof. Yeah. Awful uh, Blue Jays were bad. Cubs were bad. Both would turn it around, though, because uh, Cubs would rock it to the Division 84, and the Blue Jays started to put together a run. Blue Jays were a pretty woeful franchise. They expanded. Blue Jays and the Mariners were kind of like bad. You know, this is back in the day when expansion teams really were supposed to suck for a while. So, and they did. And, but, you know, here in 1981, here's a 105-year-old franchise that is absolutely slumming with the likes of these, uh, you know, six-year franchises. Didn't really have much. Also, uh, 81 would be also, I didn't mention this in uh, my facts because I only have five, but uh, Rick Russell, long, our longtime favorite, he would end his streak of opening days in 81. It'd be his last one because he would get dealt. He would get dealt, our guy. So it was really a, a remodeling. You know, Bob Kennedy was the general manager coming into the season. Tribune ownership, you know, P, William Wrigley III is checking out. Um, you know, even if you vaguely remember the 79 Cubs and, like, Dave Kingman and Barry Foote, you know, the only guys left were, like, Buckner. Buckner's still around. Jesus was still around in 81. They were the only things worth rooting for in a shitty team anyway. And uh, But Russell was another one of those guys, and it was like, all right, well, the guy has labored for some mediocre to shitty teams here for about five, six years, or open day starter for f- probably five or six years. Let's give him a chance to win a wor- World Series. And so he got dealt. Um, it may have been – because another thing that happened amidst like the whole – I mean, 
Wrigley family sold the, the team, I think, during the strike. And it was huge news. Tribune Company buys the Chicago Tribune, which, you know, we thought of as a newspaper. You know, they buy the team. And somewhere around there, I don't know if Tribune did this, but Bob Kennedy was forced out or fired. And then it was like, okay, let's uh, let's have Herman Franks, this rotund, bellicose, 70-year-old field manager from two years ago that, you know, helped steal signals in the Bobby Thompson game in 51. Yeah, let's just make him our general manager. What skills does Herman Franks has as a, as a general manager? I don't know. I just felt he was like, oh, it's convenient. Let's hire. So something tells me that Bob Kennedy walked away, probably saw the writing on the wall, probably figured because Bob Kennedy was a – somewhat respected baseball life for a former player, former Cub College of Coach guy. His son was a major league catcher for a good decade. You know, maybe he saw the writing on the wall. I'm out of here. And William Wrigley's like, what happened to that guy who used to stand naked in the food buffet <laughs> after games, according to Bob Verde? Let's make him the general manager while we finish the sale to the Tribune. So I don't know who it was that dealt Rick Rochelle, but it was, we were happy for the whale because he would go to the Yankees who oddly enough, this would be the Yankees only world series appearance between 1978, 1996, which, but for today would represent one of the more disgraceful droughts since 1920 for that franchise. But yeah, long and the short of it is uh, too late, but Rick Rochelle was dealt and somehow Herman Franks was back as the Cubs general manager in 81. So, and he may have dealt his former race. Russell got traded for the 1982 opening, opening day, day starter. Mm-hmm. Doug Bird. And I didn't. And I didn't mention this about Doug Bird. I don't know if you can look it up. He probably can through his game log. He was like a weird, like middle reliever spot starter for the Royals and Yankees in the from the late to the late 70s to early 80s. And he went through this weird streak. Whether he wasn't pitching a lot or he was injured. And he had some odd consecutive appearances streak that he where he didn't give up a run. I can't quite hmm. quantify it, but I know it, was, it stretched like two years, only because he didn't always pitch, but then he was kind of effective for a while. I want to say maybe even the White Sox broke it up, and here he was the White Sox announcer. Um, so he seemed like maybe he's a good pitcher. I don't know. And he was the Cubs' open day starter, and he was the best the Cubs got for Russell. But, yeah, Doug Bird at one point was on the scene for some oddball record that he kind of held. So I don't know if you can find so that. Russell went to the Yankees and he made, um, you know, in midseason, and he made twelve starts, twelve appearances, eleven starts for the Yankees. Uh, he threw three complete games. He was four and four with a two sixty seven ERA. Pitch his ass off. He did. And he I didn't know that. Clearly got hurt, right? Yes, he blew his arm out. Yeah, I don't, did he pitch he in the series? Did not pitch in the. Not only did he not pitch in the playoffs, he did not pitch in 1982, and he was back yes. in '83 for the Cubs. Yes, came hey, crawling talk back. Win-win there. Got him right back. Yeah, and Doug Bird was probably so out of could baseball. Give him up again point. before he would be before, before he would be good. Uh, here, uh, real quick, then, I, I since I brought it up, I don't want to leave any loose ends. Here's some Doug Bird facts from Wikipedia during his career. Bird was used in a variety of pitching roles, frequently shifting from the bullpen to the starting rotation, so my foggy memory was somewhat correct. And back, Bird appeared in six postseason games from 1976 through 78, all with the Royals, and each time against the New York Yankees, posting a 2.35 ERA. That's not what I was looking for. Bird, mm. now, he's, he's most known for surrendering a two-run homer to Thurman 
Munson in the eighth inning of game three. Apparently, this oddball stat that had all the sports wags raving in 1980 uh, is not really, it's been lost to the sands of time if Wikipedia doesn't have it. Or maybe I can find it still and add it. Put my wiki editor hat on. It was some odd thing. But back to Russell. Well, this seems really good. So he, he pitches, pitches for the Cubs in 81. They trade him to the Yankees. He pitches well but gets hurt. He comes back, and he pitches 83 and 84 for the Cubs, uh, but only makes twenty, only pitches 23 games. Six and six with a 494 ERA. The Cubs are like, all right, fuck, you're, you're done. Yep. And the next get, year. Give up for nothing the second time. Goes to Pittsburgh in his first season with the Pirates. He goes 14 and eight with a 227 yeah. ERA. But what was that first season? Was it 85 or 86? 85. So, so he rehabbed so on had, the Cubs' dime. Right, and had the Cubs kept him around, that was a year when they needed every one of their starters got hurt. And um, the guy they just gave away won 14 games for the Pirates. We've talked about Dallas Green, how much we love Although, I, I, you know, I, I'm not hesitant to point out any chinks in his armor. I think he held on to the 84 Cubs a year too long, obviously, and it helped uh, accelerate it. We found that out we when we thought they were going to trade them all, and they all stuck right. around. In my memory, Matthews and Say gave their swan songs in '86, but no, they actually stuck around, you know, uh, you know, another year until '87. But I, I do remember at the time, as much as we loved the breath of fresh air that Dallas Green brought, I remember my dad like sort of bristling sometimes at, at even he was sometimes bristle at, you know, Green's reliance on uh, his Philly connection and like you know for some reason Warren Brewster drove my dad nuts. And we always felt like Russell. He pitched well. He, he uh, okay in '84, and and he was, but he was left off the playoff roster. He and Rich Bordy were two kind of ominous decisions in which you know Brewster and maybe some other Philly washout was kept on. Maybe Ruthven. I don't know. But I, I remember like the feeling was that all right, we appreciate what Dallas Green is doing, but boy, he really is unsentimental in the yeah. way he he did bring Russell back and he, and kind of stupidly let him rehab on his dime, on the Cubs dime, but he was left off the '84 playoff roster he did contribute a little bit and then they let him walk and then he after he you know he was fully healed because i think he was still kind of working back from that injury at the cubs you know helped him rehabilitate i, mean, I he, can't imagine the cubs the looking segment. at rick russell that fine athletic specimen and doubting <laughs> that he could make it all the way back from arm surgery <laughs> <laughs> and, and the whole fitting end of course is that russell it's so Cub, of course. Flash forward to 1989, and, and the Cubs are teetering anyway. The series was probably lost because of games three and four, but uh, and they did tag Russell for their only win in game two. But uh, basically, Rick Russell there was on the hill pitching the Giants to a pennant over the Cubs in the deciding uh, game five of the 89 yeah. NLCS. A good eight years after the Cubs uh, got rid of him the first time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so 83 when he was rehabbing, he was uh, he made a, a stint pitching for the Quad City Cubs. I love this story. You've and told when, this before, but yeah. don't let that stop you because it's they, a good one. And they went to visit the Beloit Brewers, who were in their second season ever. 82 was their was the first year in Beloit, where they were led by Brad DeCry and Ty Van Berkeleyo and uh, some other guy with a funky name who was a hitting coach for a long time. I can't think of who that was. Um, so we went back. We went to Dad wanted to go to a game when the Quad City Cubs were in town, and I'm like, sure. So we go there, and uh, we got there early, and Big Daddy Rick Russell is uh, doing a rehab stint for Quad City, which is why it turns out why Dad wanted to go. And so my dad is standing down by the visitors' dugout, and he's yelling at Rick Russell to come over. 
and I'm as well, so I'm what I'm eleven, and I'm embarrassed because Dad is yelling at this player who's clearly just going to blow him off. Rick comes by, Dad yells um, what his name is and the name of one of our neighbors, because Rick Russell has hunted. Uh, on uh, on our neighbor's land. And so as soon as Rick hears that name, he comes right over. Nice. And him and Dad chatted up for a while, and I'm standing there, and he asks me, he signs my uh, program. And then he asks me, I don't know why he asked me this, but he did. He goes, hey, is there anybody on the team that you want, you want to get an autograph from? And I'm like, yeah. Can you get me Sean Dunstan's autograph? And he's like, I'll do better than that. And he disappears into the dugout. And like two minutes later, Sean Dunstan pops up with Rick Russell and says hi and signs. Twenty-year-old Sean Dunstan. Right. I'm you know, ten. You're half his age. Nineteen-year-old. I'm like eight. We're eight years difference is all. And I got Sean Dunstan's autograph in a program that I still have somewhere. The other thing I remember about that day was when we bought the program. The guy at the counter said, "Oh, here, take this one." He goes, "It's a winner." And Dad's like, "What?" And he opens it to a page in the thing, and there's Derek a there's signature. A, no, uh, even better. There's a Kentucky Fried Chicken ad in the program, and there's a stamp on it. He goes, "During whatever inning, they're gonna call out, check your program, and if you have the stamp, you win." It was like you know, even like dinner at KFC or whatever. KFC, baby. So that program had Rick Russell's autograph, Sean Dunson's autograph, and it was a winner at KFC. And what I remember <laughs> is a few days later, we drove back to Beloit and we got KFC and everybody in the house got sick. <laughs> so, I would think that uh, maybe next time you could ask uh, Rick Russell to spare a few of the pheasants he hunted on your <laughs> dad's right. neighbor's lawn. Rick, do you know I, if they're I, properly preparing the chicken? I love that, that he was a hunter. He's a, he's a Quincy boy, Rick Russell. Uh, same as... I believe Jack Brickhouse and Eldon Tappy, who was a college of coaches. Quincy always had a little bit of a connection to Chicago, but, uh, and of course, Paul Russell, another yes. Quincy guy, but well, um, Paul and Rick came out together. They were the ones farming on Bernie Walsh's land. Um, excellent. Excellent. Another guy, another Chicago athlete who liked to hunt out by where I grew up was Mark Bortz. And I went to my friend, uh, I went to my friend really? Aaron's wedding and we're sitting there, and I look over, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's Mark Bortz is at the what? This is long after he had retired from the Bears, and wasn't nearly, I mean, he, he didn't get Tom Thayer skinny, but he wasn't huge anymore. But I'm like, that's Mark right. Bortz. And we went and we sat at Mark Bortz's table for like 20 minutes and drank beer. Nice. And just talked about, like, talked about the I, Ditka era Bears with Mark Bortz. He was I do, nice. that is awesome. I do always sort of associate Bortz with Thayer because they seem to have a similar build, but Bortz always seemed to have that more Neanderthalic forehead. He's big, much bigger. You know, but Thayer's kind of squatty. I know, well, Thayer's, yeah. But Bortz Thayer was not like short. A, Bortz was tall for a guard. Okay. At least, well, no, I have uh, to me and probably I'm still two, small taller than me, probably still small compared to Keith Van Horn. I only say well, that because Steve, Do- like Steve Dahl, you should just say that Keith Van Horn was the most gigantic white man he'd ever met. Oh yeah. Board six, six. Okay. So yeah, that's way, that's really tall for a guard. Cause I remember, you know, I saw him across the, we, we didn't, they got married outdoors somewhere. So I saw him. 
And I'm like, oh, that's Mark Bortz. And then later, as we made our way over to them, I he just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. As I got closer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, holy shit, this dude's huge. Well, now I know why. He's four inches taller than me. So at some point during the 1981 season, Mark Bortz was probably doing some mini camp in Iowa. It was he Iowa guy, right? Yeah, he's he was Iowa. Man, he's a Midwestern man. guy. Um, hey, maybe now is a good time. We can when we do the early 80s and teams in which Bill Buckner played. We can play that game. How many strikeouts did Bill Buckner have in 1981? <laughs> but you have to adjust it because it's only 103 yeah. games. Oh, he might not have struck out four times. Oh, let me think. He probably played most of the games because. Um, you know, he had a nice long rest in the, in the middle of the season. So I'm going to say that Bill Buckner in 1981 struck out 12 times. Oh, you're way off. In uh, 421 at bats, 16 strikeouts. Just okay. So he had <laughs> way more at bats. He had way more at bats oh, than I was uh, calculating. 311, on. 349, 480. It was a 130 OPS plus. 10 homers, oh, 75 RBIs. Shit. 75 RBIs in 106 games. For a shitty team. Yeah. He had a hell of a season. He, he came into the yeah. season, and we've discussed this, as the defending National League batting champion as well. The the primary second baseman on the 1981 Cubs. You know who it was. Oh, Can I guess? Yeah. Opening day second baseman was Joe Strain. Uh, who was traded, I believe, maybe we should pull up. I believe they played the Mets. I, I already said it was Rick Russell's last opening day. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was against the Mets. Oh, actually, he's uh, not. I don't know why they listed him. Because, uh, okay, yeah, there's three guys who played second base. Quite There's four guys. I no, could be wrong. but Okay, there's four guys who played second base, but three of them played the most games. Two of them are okay. inextricably linked in Cub. I, I, well, I can I can nail them because I want to say Joe Strain was the opening day center field. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but he's got to be one of the three. Am I wrong? Joe Strain is yes. Good, because he was traded for uh, the aforementioned in a previous podcast, Jesus Figueroa, mm -hmm. who uh, got my hopes up with a basket home run for his only career home run, uh, but then he was dealt. Yeah, sure. Joe Strain actually went two for three on opening day, so uh, hopes are high, but he was terrible. Uh, Junior Kennedy, I'm sure, was the, an 81 Cub, and then, of course, the white Mike Tyson. Are, the, are those our three second basemen? No. Or Mike Tyson, yes. The not, guy not who, street the guy who baseball uh, reference listed as the second baseman was Pat Tabler. Oh, uh, but he only he played fewer games than both. Um, than he played more games than Strain, fewer games than Tyson. And, and what he, about Junior he, Kennedy? What about what about Steve Stone's street fighting man, Junior Kennedy? Uh, I, I do not. Was see, he, do not he was he not on the team? Kennedy. He must not have been an eighty-one Cub. So how did I think that he was on the team the year before? Because I, I mentioned how going into the 82 season. Maybe he went on strike and never came back. He was well, still, he was mad. Going, going like, I don't think we got a fair deal. I'm going into back. the 82 season, Marvin, long time. You got a lot of work Red Philly. Junior Kennedy was was going to be the everyday second baseman. And Pat Tabler, who was a, a young prospect that the Cubs have nabbed, maybe related to your observation about Steinbrenner just dealing prospects willy-nilly, uh, was going to be the backup. And at the last minute, Dallas Green acquired Bump Wills, which basically rendered uh, junior street fighting man Junior Kennedy is the backup and Pat Tabler in Des Moines. And Pat Tabler was pissed. Uh, but I thought that Junior Kennedy had actually. I, I thought that I was familiar with Junior Kennedy well, that Junior he had Kennedy been on the eighty-one Cubs, red. and he was an eighty-two. Incredible! Cup. So much has just been the reports from Mesa in spring training that got me familiar with Junior Kennedy. But the the fourth uh, second baseman, the baseball reference lists, 
is Scott Fletcher. That's why I said two of these guys are inextricably linked. Scott Fletcher made his debut in 81. Yes, because after the 82 season, Pat Tabler, Scott Fletcher, Randy Martz, and Dick Tidrow were traded from the Cubs to the White Sox. Steve Trout and Warren Brewster? Warren Brewster and Steve Trout. All right, uh, since you brought it up, that's another chink in Dallas Green's armor. Maybe we'll save 84. 84, we talked about when he traded for Carter or he traded for Sutcliffe, and that actually it was an early trade deadline, but it was also uh, the guys that Green had dealt, Joe Cardamel, had not cleared waivers, and that we had to sweat it out until that. So Dallas Green wasn't perfect. Um, and I'm going to say that um, that the same thing is a little bit applicable when it comes to that trade, because the re- he was forced to make that trade right prior to the 83 season because Fergie Jenkins had come back. Dallas Green had signed him, uh, and he had a nice season. He was slated to be the opening day starter in 83, Fergie was, and that somehow Green had fucked up and, and Fergie was not protected. And the rumor around town was that the White Sox were going to grab Fergie Jenkins because the Sox were actually kind of on a little bit of an ascension. They would win the division in 83. Oh, yeah. They were... LaRusso was their manager. They had some good young players. Harold Baines was actually playing a position and, and being productive. And um, and I don't know how much they needed Fergie. Well, he was on his original it, heart and kidneys. Right, right. Thank you. But somehow that deal was sort of seemed like Dallas Green was forced to make that trade. He was compromised so he could that the Sox like kind of held him ransom for Fergie. Turned out to be a benefit because Steve Trout would be the number two starter in '84, and Warren Brewster, as much as we didn't care for him, was uh, a member of the bullpen. And that flat Sam that the Cubs, the Cubs sent to the Sox, Tabler, the Sox gave up on Tabler. He'd have a nice little short career at Cleveland and be known as Mr. Grand Slam guy in the '80s. And then who would you say, Fletcher, Randy Martz? Did you say Randy, Randy, Randy Martz? Dick Tidrow. And Dick Tidrow at the end of his career. So didn't really hurt Dallas Green, but I remember it was like it was a black, kind of a black eye for Dallas the, Green uh, that he carelessly left Fergie unprotected. The Sox. Let, let me tell you why the Pat Tabler, Scott Fletcher trade turned out to be a disaster for the White Sox. Ooh, I'm here for this. So that trade was in January, right before spring training, which of '83. Yes, which works out the timing that you said. So at at the end of spring training, uh, Tony Larusa is looking over his roster and he's like, "I don't have I don't have any room for Pat Tabler. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to trade him." They traded him to the Indians for Jerry Dibzinski. Oh, oh my God! His base Can running he... cost them. The yes. 1983 ALCS against the Orioles. Ooh, hey, can we stick a pin in that and maybe do a deep dive on that when the wheel falls on 1983? I would have loved that. We have a lot to cover with 83, I guess. But, you know, that's – for those of you not in the know, Jerry Dibzinski, if you're a diehard Sox fan that was cogent in 1983, he's – you know, it's kind of when you we see Leon Durham in 84, Alex Gonzalez in, in 2003, just a player on your team that um, – Makes a mistake, and in his case, it was largely a mental mistake. He, uh, this, these were back when LCS games were our series were three out of five, and the Sox were down two to one. Two to one game, they would get eliminated, but it's a zero zero game, late innings, Rick and he's Burns on first pitching Ripper his ass pitch off. His ass off. He went ten innings, I think, uh, until they get up the homer to uh, former and future Cardinal Tito Landrum. Tito but, Landrum. 
I think uh, at one point Dibzinski was on first. The, the Sox, the Sox bats were cold in that whole series, but they woke up uh, in this like sixth or seventh inning. Dibzinski is on first, and somebody gets a hit to the gap, and Dibzinski rounds second, but he goes too far and gets hung up, and that was like the Sox best threat. Just one of those names that will live in infamy. So I, I, I never, I never realized that the that the Sox had given up Pat Tabler, who then himself, you know, so you can imagine an alternate history Pat Tabler. I don't know if he was a heady player. I don't know, at least not dipshitty enough to get into that base running situation, but Pat Tabler would have a brief sort of a career, somewhat productive for the Indians, but he had this weird uh, sort of anomalous statistical thing with his uh, offensive production with the bases loaded. Which, of course, most hitters have good numbers with the yeah, bases not, loaded. Not like this. So here's Pat Tabber's career numbers with the bases loaded. He batted 88 times with the bases loaded. This is almost unbelievable. In 88 at-bats with the bases loaded, he scored 80 runs. <laughs> Wait, what? I mean, he, he had did... 109 plate appearances, but still, 80 times. He came up 109 times with the bases loaded. He ended up scoring 80 of those times. How, wait, how does that factor? So th- you're not just looking at his at-bats. St- he scored 80. That's what, what am I says. missing? 109 okay. plate appearances, 80 runs, 43 hits, six doubles, three triples, two homers. In those 80 at-bats with the base loader, he drove in 108 runs. So that he tracks. Walked, he walked 11 times with the bases loaded. So there's 11 of his 108 RBIs right there. He only struck out nine times in 88 at bats with the bases loaded. Wow. He slashed 489, 505, 693 for <laughs> wow. a career OPS with the bases loaded of 1.198. That's an OPS plus of 229. So it's not like he had a hot streak at some point in his career. He did it the whole Throughout time. the duration of his career. Uh, to close the book on Pat Tabler, did we see who the Cubs dealt to get him from the Yankees? I just It was around the time that they dealt Russell, but the, he was not involved in the Russell trade. You already covered that. I just remember when I brought this up in 1980 because he got called up. Was, was, did he get called up in 80? Because Pat Tabler has come up as a Cub before 82. Um, but I remember like there was rumors for weeks that this prospect, because he was a pretty well-regarded prospect. That the Cubs were in the hunt to get Pat yeah, Tabler. He, uh, August 19th, 19... Oh, he got... It was that year. August 19th, 81. So he... Okay. His, all of his games were after the... Were, he got, right. he got yep. during the season that year. Oh, this was a... This was the Yankees going for it. The Yankees acquired Bill Caudill and Jay Howell. Two of the aforementioned in previous podcasts... Uh, nondescript Cubs relief pitchers from this exact era who would go on to become, for at least for brief periods, dominant closers in, and how about this? Uh, in the majors. Uh, well, this is weird. Because Bill Caudle would be an 84 all-star for Oakland and sign a huge contract for the Blue Jays. He just, okay. Well, cause, So I don't understand the trade from the Yankee standpoint. Now that I read the dates. Um, because this is after the trade deadline. And after they've resumed play. Yes. I guess maybe they pushed it back. But if the trade was Pat Tabler to the Cubs for two players we named later. That was the trade. Caudill went to the Yankees on April 1st, 82. And Howell went to the Yankees on August 2nd, 1982. 
a whole year. A year after the trade, they finally threw in the other body. It was Jay. So the Yankees were not, in fact, going for it in '81. They just had to get rid of Pat Tabler, and they're planning. What an well, like, odd you think they trade! They just had to like clear a forty-man spot or something weird because of other trades there. Because clearly, they, and the Yankees and the, the Yankees were going, and the Yankees were going to the playoff. Right? Yeah. So. so they didn't have room for Pat Tabler. They had and they, they didn't forced want, to get rid of him. And they didn't want anybody on their – For that must season. must have been clear in roster space because they, they got two bodies, but they didn't want either one of them then. I wonder how much of it is just related to, like, any logistical um, sort of uh, short-term circumstances that arose out of the strike. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, huh. it's, it's weird. I, you know, you don't see that. Player and laters do not linger for uh, – Right. Well, was the like, longest it, one didn't the Cubs? Wasn't Bobby Hill a player name later, and they had to wait for a certain amount of time before they could actually like send him? Wasn't that right? You was might that be to right. The Pirates. Yeah, the Mitch. That was uh, like was he part of the Aramis trade? Yes. There's some contractual or complaining that, but I know what's happened. Where it's like, okay, we know this guy's getting traded, but he can't go yet. Just don't. It's kind of well. Don't break that's kind. That's kind of what like Pat Tabler's situation was in it because I just remember like the Cubs were in the running. Somebody was going to get Pat Tabler, and it turned out to be the Cubs. So hey, that's a bright spot, you know that. Um, you know Herman Frank's coming back to run the team. Uh, what other bright spot? Oh, Lee Smith, you know, was on the '81 Cubs, so that's good. He was emerging. You know, Suter was gone. I think Tidrow came into the season as the nominal close. Again, they had no plan. They had no plan for a long-term manager. They had absolutely decrepit, but yeah, Tidrow would have been their starter. So even think, but, even though the season was two halves long, that starter. Cubs still only used 15 pitchers. In <laughs> they're uh, they're starting f- the guys who made the most starts for them. I'm gonna double check. Uh, well, Kruko maybe our guy. Uh, Kruko is still in the 81 Cubs. Yeah, Kruko made the most. The only one who made. The only one who made more than 14 starts was Mike Kruko. He's 9 and 9 with a 368. That's not bad for a no. bad team. Well, I think we've, we've established Kruko is a better pitcher than I even remember. Yeah. Uh, Russell was 4 and 7 in the 13 starts he made before he got traded. Doug Bird <laughs> got traded for Russell, and he ended up making 12 starts. He went 4 and 5. Okay. Mike Griffin went 2 and 5. He made 9 starts and 7 relief appearances. The Before other guy who made. Oh, um, yeah, Randy Martz made 14 starts. So Randy Martz was kind of like what we had to settle for as our pitching prospect uh, around this time. Well, oh, Bill, Randy Martz. Oh, there are a lot of guys got starts. Bill Cottle got 10 and Ken Kravick got 12. Uh, Bill Co- So Ken Kravick had been traded for Dennis Lamp uh, going into the season. I mentioned this before. I'll just quickly mention it again. As Cub fans, we thought we had owned the White Sox because we thought Ken Kravick was a really good Sox pitcher, and he may have been. And Dennis Lamp was just this guy whose mustache and eyebrows were so thick that he couldn't see even through his foggy glasses. And yet Dennis Lamp would go on to have a really nice, uh, you know, 1980s. And Ken Kravick was out of baseball in the year and, of course, would come back as a Cubs front office guy. But I think he went 1-7 in 81. And who was the other guy? I'm sorry, you mentioned before Kravick that had starts uh, on that team. I had a thought about him. Yeah. Oh, besides Kravick. Yeah, so Cottle may have hit a, a, a double in 1981. I only remember this 
because this is what we do, random facts that may or may not be able to be verified. But there was a game uh, when the shadows were creeping out, and it, I'm pretty sure it was 1981, but it could have been 1980. If so, I apologize. But Bill Cottle, relief pitcher, was batting, and he showed bunt and pulled the bat back and lined mm. it over the third baseman's head. It was all we could talk about for days at a time. Uh, and then one more loose end, because you mentioned Scott Fletcher, I'm just going to mention that very exciting for nine-year-old Huey. Uh, got to see Scott Fletcher's debut on television, not in person. Now, I mentioned before that we saw future Dodger manager Jim Tracy's debut in person at Wrigley Field and how exciting it was because he <laughs> wasn't in the program because oh. that's how new he had yeah. been called up. Uh and Jim Tracy may have gotten a hit or two, but not in his first at bat. I just remember watching this game on TV in 81. And oh my God, here's this new guy, Scott Fletcher. And he got a hit in his first major league plate appearance. Jack Brickhouse is going nuts. And since I'm on this tangent, I'm just going to say one more fun fact. So I don't forget about it later this season. Another player would get his first major league hit at Wrigley field in September. Only it was a member of the Philadelphia Phillies. And his name was Ryan Sandberg. Oh. But that happened in 1981. Was it, was it Ryan D. Sandberg? I don't know, but there's video of it. Cause somebody posted a few months ago, and Leon Dern was in right field. Uh, I think it was the second game of a doubleheader or something. Sandberg was called up in 81 by the Phillies as a shortstop. He went one for nine. Dallas Green, of course, was still the Phillies manager. Uh, Andy, your that glove looks perfect, by the way. That's Andy's right. for those of you, I, nobody can see this, but nobody can see that I've been reunited with my the Rawlings with the glove of my youth, the uh Ryan Sandberg Rawlings fastback. Yep, um, which is not mine though. Um, I found it on eBay, the exact model that I had, and I bought it. And the thing is like in mint condition. I almost I feel bad. It's, Some kid never used this clearly, even through the years. uh. Even through the Google View, even through the Zoom or whatever, that looks like a it's a quality glove. You can play ball with that. Good. I'm going to join a league. Just yeah. to use my glove. Got to be a men. But yeah, Ryan Sandberg made his debut like '81. It really, you know, the expression um, "it's always darkest before the dawn" probably applies because you know the you there were some. It was, it was such a nadir, but there were some signs. Maybe, you know, Leon Durham was on the Cubs. Lee Smith was on the Cubs. Sandberg graced his presence. There'd be, you know, shitbags like Scott Fletcher would not be on the 84 Cubs. Uh, yeah, this thing, things things would turn, but there was a whole lot of shit to pile through. Do you know who else made his Wrigley Field debut on August 15th, 1981? August 15th, 1981. Um, uh, Mel Hall? No. Me. Um... Oh, your first game. My the first game I ever went to was a just a beauty. I don't know how we got tickets. <laughs> it was hey, hey, it was the second week after the strike ended. It there was, was the, probably a, the, a, a rush of people. The seventeen and forty Cubs hosting <laughs> seventeen forty hosting the twenty six and twenty seven Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, that my brother, my dad, my uh, my grandpa, my mom's dad. So the uh, four of us and 15,384 other people on a Saturday in August. Saturday in August. Can you repeat that uh, attendance, Andy? 15,388. <laughs> in case uh, we needed further accentuation as to the uh, sort of historic nadir that the Cubs were probably, even by lower attendance standards in 1981, the fact that a 
day game in August uh, against a team that had won the World Series. Still had probably Dave Park and Willie Stargell. Oh, yeah, couldn't even draw. Couldn't even draw sixteen thousand uh, to Wrigley Field. That's pretty fucking bad. Well, how about this? Tonight's attendance, as we're recording this, tonight's attendance in Oakland was. Bob Nightingale just reported. It's got to be right. 2,703. It's the lowest wow. Major League Baseball attendance, except for the time the Orioles weren't allowed to have fans. <laughs> After <laughs> the uh, Freddie, oh my God, Freddie Graymer. Oh, wow. 2,703. They had 3,400 last night. Wait, I remember a Sox game uh, when the 1997 season was ice-ass cold, and the Sox had an opener that had 934. We can circle back to well, that. But Maybe he just meant it was Oakland's lowest. I think that I think if you Google 1997 oh, Whites, I mean, it might not even even been opening day, but it was a game rookie, in April. Rookie league teams will have more than 27. Yes, people. the Sox literally had, uh, and this was in the modern era when they counted tickets sold. Uh, but there was a game I know it was under a thousand tickets sold for a White Sox game. It was so fucking cold in April of '97. Okay, Sorry, so, here's, so here's what we did: we uh, we got a hold of these hot tickets somehow. I don't know how we did it. It was great. There was no StubHub back then. It, you're talking about August 15th, 1981. Yeah. There was no StubHub, but there was a Ticketron. Well, maybe that's what we did. I don't know, but we somehow got our hands on these in-demand tickets, and uh, we we hopped in the. Uh, I believe uh, we were driving a lovely uh, brown Ford LTD at the time. We all piled in the LTD, <laughs> including my mom. And we drove, um, we drove down 90, and we stopped at the Woodfield Mall and let her out. Mom was going to go shopping while we went to, uh, um, well, we went to see the Cubs. Yeah, and, and so Dave, then, well, and the Pirates maybe at this point. Yeah. And we hopped back in the car and we drove down to Wrigley, and uh, we got there and we got to see, um, let's see, the starting lineup for the uh, Pirates. Uh, yeah, they still had they still had a fair amount of '79 Pirates. Omar Marino in center field. Tim yep. Foley was the shortstop. Dave Parker. Yep. The Cobra was in right all field. '79 Pirates. Rod Skirt. Yep. Mike Heisler was a '79. I'm pretty My, sure it was a '79. Yes, so Mike was John Eisler. Milner. Mike Heisler. Phil John Garner. Milner. These are all '79 Pirates. Dale Barra. Not to, not Tony Pena though. He was their new catcher. Ed Ott and uh, yeah. Okay, but still, this and is then, still Jim Bibby. Team was pitching Lee for the Pirates. Against the Cubs. Oh, what a great lineup they had. Avanda Jesus at shortstop. Steve Henderson in left. Bill Buckner at first. Bobby Bonds in center. Hector Cruz in right. Jody Davis, the catcher. Ken Reitz at third. Steve Dillard played second. And hey, what do you know? Mike Kruko was the starting pitcher. First game I ever saw. One, Your of, my, one of my favorite announcers. Um, yeah, so we settled in to watch this uh, exciting game. Well, Mom was running around the mall, spending money that dad didn't have. And um, uh, things got off to a promising start. Uh, the Cubs scored first, the bottom of the second. Kenny Reitz doubled in Hector Cruz. The Cubs were up one nothing. They um, Heidi Pirates, Cruz. Pirates would tie it on a Tim Foley single that scored Omar Marino. By the way, Tim Foley, another one of those um, countless shortstops of this era that absolutely had a wet newspaper for a bat. Just mm. pointing that out. Sorry. Go on. So at some point uh, early in the game, we were sitting um, down the uh, – we were sitting a few rows back of the Pirates uh, – no, it would have been the Cubs uh, bullpen, right? 
Uh, third, uh, was it opposite? On the third base side, right? Or well, the Cubs dug. Yeah, the Cubs, the home team dugout is usually third base, but they, for some years they would switch it where the bullpen be across the diamond, I uh, think. Or maybe, oh, so, anyway. so they could see them easier? That's I don't annoying. know. Yeah, right. But anyway, so we were sitting behind one of the bullpens. That, that's not the important part, but. Uh, that didn't sound right, though. Mike Easler was the left fielder, so we were pretty close to him. And uh, there were some guys sitting behind us who were uh, smoking something funny. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, First place uh, to ever smell ganja was in the bleachers at Wrigley, yeah. FYI. And uh, Ezer was playing catch with, um, I would guess it was, I would guess it was the Pirates guy, because who knows, I was eight, I don't remember. I seem to remember that he was being intrigued by the fact that he was playing catch with somebody in the bullpen. So that would have been the Pirates bullpen then, right? Because he was yeah. playing catch with a cub. While right. uh, Omar Marino and Dave Parker were playing catch by themselves on the other half of the outfield. And uh, Ezer dropped an easy throw from, from this guy. We got and, heckled. The, and our friends behind us kept calling him Hans. First, they were calling him Hans Easler. <coughs> then they changed to Hans Easley. So for the rest of the game, he was Hans Easley. I don't know why, because maybe Kenny Easley. I don't know. Um, for the rest, <laughs> I don't for think my, so. the rest of my life, he's always been Hans Easley to me. Wow. He's been Mike Easler. So we had that going for us, which was fun. Um, yeah, which is nice. But. Uh, Tied at, for, tied at one in the sixth, and Ty Waller pinch hit for Ken Reeds, even though Reeds had already driven in the only run. But it was a savvy move by Joey Malfitano because Ty Waller at 1982 opening day center fielder. Yeah, he, had a, he had a sack fly to Omar Marino, scored Bill Buckner. The throw went awry, and Bobby Bond scored. So the Cubs were up three to one. And real quick, since you brought him up, not to interrupt the game, but I like the flow of this, but Bobby Bonds was uh, his last major league stop. Of course, uh, a nine-year-old Hugh, we had no idea about Barry Bonds. Bobby himself was a bit of a, a well-known player by like kind of being a breakout, high strikeout Willie Mays type. He hit 30 homers, 30 steals, and a shitload of strikeouts for his time. Uh, very exciting kind of all five-tool player. And then, But 1981, he was an old man. But he was fun. He was like one of these guys. I remember being you know, like, you know, this slapdash team that they put together. We've got Bobby Bonds that my dad would tell me about. Hit a lot of homers and stole a lot of bases in the 70s. Uh, so, yeah, here he is against his uh, son's future team, tie, helping to tie the, go- the, the, the the game up. So Cubs are up 3-1 to one going into the, into the top of the eighth. Um, in the bottom of the seventh, Mike Lum had pinch hit for Kruko. So Bill Cottle came out to pitch the eighth. Um, Steve Nicosia. 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 He singled a lead off the inning. A line drive to right field out there to Leon Durham. And um, Omar Moreno, he grounded out. It uh, Nicosia went to second. So runner in second, one out. Tim Foley grounded out to the pitcher. And Nicosia must not have advanced. He's a catcher, so, so runner at second, scared. And two outs, and Joey goes to Doug Capilla. Doug Capilla. So he comes in to face Dave Parker. Yeah, uh, Doug Capilla was a left-hander. He's a tiny Hawaiian-looking guy with a thin mustache. So, and he gave up a single to Dave Parker to tie to make it three to two. Um, with Mike with hands easily up. Parker stole second base and then easily singled to tie the game. Uh, it was a ground ball whoa, whoa. to shortstop. 
Yvonne couldn't do it. Slow roller. Parker maybe. scored, and then Easler was out trying to go to second. I can't imagine what happened that all that happened. Maybe, uh, yeah, I think maybe uh, a botch rundown is hitting the pole, and then uh, what's his name, rounded third too much. Sounds way too heady of a play for the 81 Cubs to have pulled off. Throw behind the runner, but somehow botch it. But that sounds like the 81 yeah. Cubs. He scores, but they still manage to get Easler. Who knows? So now we're tied. Go to the bottom of the eighth. Kent Tecolvi has come in to play for the Pirates. Uh, Cubs do not score. They um... Kent Tecolvi always scared us because even though he was like 68 pounds, he looked like a scarecrow and he wore sunglasses. It looked like the uh, the warden in uh, uh, Cool Hand Luke, kind of, maybe. With two outs, Waller singled and stole second, and then Steve Dillard walked. So Mike Tyson, who pinch hit for Doug Capilla, had a chance with two on and two outs, but he popped out to left field. Damn you, Mike Tyson. Lee Arthur Smith came in to pitch the top of the ninth. Very young Lee Arthur Smith. And he pitched around a one-out single to Phil Garner. Scrap iron. Scrap. And so we went to the bottom of the ninth. And here's how um, here's how this started. Kent Colby still in. DeJesus singles to left. Steve Henderson bunts. And he's safe, and so is DeJesus. So runners first and second, and nobody out. Bill Buckner's up. Well, he certainly Billy Buck is gonna get it gonna get a walk off. We don't even know it was a walk off at the time. He's, he's, he's in the midst off. of he's in the midst of probably his best season yes. as a cub. He's a defending NL champion. So, a uh, champion. Yeah, this started out with uh, fifteen thousand fans. We're probably down to about eight thousand now. Um we're all up, we're cheering, we're excited, and Avante Hayes gets picked off second base. Oof. So now there's one out with a runner first. Buck flies out to right, but, St- but uh, uh, Steve Henderson steals second. So Bobby Bonds is up. He can single and win the game, but he pops out to second base. Mm. So now about this time, Dad is starting to get nervous because now we're going to extra innings. He left oh, mom. Your mom, I forgot all about your mom at Woodfield. He left mom in the mall. This She's was like, back in the days when malls, or at least a lot of the stores, closed at 5 o'clock on Saturdays. Especially in August. Everyone's outside. Not doing, they do business at cold weather. So a 120 game, he's probably thinking we could probably hang on for another inning. It, maybe, the or, maybe the Orange Bowl is still open. She yeah. can get a sherbet. I don't know. And but I think mostly he's thinking, um, she's got lots of checks. We don't have a lot of money, but she's got lots of checks, and I probably don't want to leave her in there much longer. <laughs> That's the other concern. So he's to get, race against the clock. So he's getting nervous, but it's like I ah, don't worry. The Cubs, the Cubs are terrible. They're going to blow it. We'll we'll be out of here in no time. Right, right. This is a historically bad team. Let's get so it over. So in with. the in the top of the tenth, um, with two outs, Omar Marino singles, steals second base. Everybody was running all over. Jody and Tony Pena, apparently. Um, Tim Foley walks. So his runner is a first and second with two outs for Dave Parker. He grounds out to Buckner. So we're going to the bottom of the 10th. <laughs> Jerry Morales leads off the bottom few, of the 10th. With a, a few single. more fans leave. The Dolans yeah. are still in their seats. Jerry the Morales leads are... off with a single. He gets the great Bill Robinson, who pitched forever. No, Bill, Bill Robinson? Yeah, Bill Robinson. 
the first baseman used to be a Mets coach in 84. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm thinking of the wrong. I was thinking of the other Don guys. Robinson. Odell Jones replaced Bill Robinson. You're right. Yeah, Odell Don Jones Robinson was the pitcher. That's Bill Robinson almost got into a fight with some of the very fans hanging out behind the dugout as a Mets coach in 84, but he was still playing mm. for the Pirates in 81. All okay, right. so Odell Jones is in. Jerry Morales, he's off with a single. Jody Bunsen to second. They intentionally walk Ty Waller. So here's Steve of Dillard. Of course. Two on and one out. Oh, what an insult to my guy, Steve Dillard. He, he walked out. Ty Waller in front of him. He pops out to the first baseman. Tim mm. Blackwell pinch hits for Lee Smith. And his handlebar mustache. And he strikes out. Oh, he sucked. So Mike Griffin comes in to pitch for the Cubs. Former Yankee. Uh, and he gets Easler, Milner, and Garner. One, two, three. Wow. Bottom of the 11th. Odell Jones is still in. He strikes out to Jesus and Henderson, and then Buckner grounds out to the pitcher. So at least things are going fast because we're still there. As far as we know. No, I know because I, I know when we left. Um, we get to the 12th. <laughs> and with uh, two outs, Nicosia singles, Omar Marino singles, Tim Foley singles, but of course Nicosia can't score. So the bases are loaded with two outs. Dave Parker's up. And he grounds out to second base. Ah, okay. Cobra, not feeling up for it. So Rod Scurry comes in a pitch, bottom of the 12th. He gets Bonds. He strikes out Bonds and Morales. Jody pops out to first. Uh, the Pirates come up in the top of the 13th. We're still there. We're getting ready. Dad's getting antsy, but we're still there. Sun's starting. We've talked about yeah, suspended games dark. before. Yeah, There's no the shadows are so out there. Uh, Easler and Milner ground out. Phil Garner walks. Mike Griffin balks Dale Barra to, um, or blocks oh, with, with Barra batting. So Garner goes to second. Randy Martz comes in. He ends up walking Barra. And Lee Lacey's up, but he flies out. So now we're going to the bottom of the 13th. Um, Rod Scurry's still in. He strikes out Waller and Dillard. Randy Martz has to bat for himself, which I think was probably the end of it for Dad. Well, yeah. At this point, Marshall Fields is closed yeah. at Woodfield, but Sears is still open. So, <laughs> so she's buying, she's looking at white walls and uh, and <laughs> washer dryers. Randy Mars pops out to the catcher, and I would guess we stuck around. I think we stuck around for the for the fourteenth. Are you saying you didn't stick around for the uh, the thrilling finish? Um. So in the t- Randy Mart's still pitching. Obviously, he stayed in the hit. He better be pitching. And uh, Nikosha flies out. Omar Marino singles. Tim Foley walks. Oh, I see where you're headed. I'm looking ahead here. Yeah. This is good. I, there's a story here I can tell. Rod Scurry flies out. And then Mike Easler comes up with another chance, with a chance to give them the lead. He grounds out to the pitcher. Now we're going to the bottom of the 14th. And I'm positive <laughs> at this point, Dad is like, all right, if they don't score here, we've got to go. Right, and this is either your this is your first game or the first game you remember. Either way, this is your first memory of, of being. Yeah, a it's Cubs the first game, game I, first Cubs game I ever went to. Um, because we've told this story before. It's going on and on and on. Yes. Are you bored, by the way? I know your dad's anxious because your mom's. You know, I don't know. Probably, I would think by now. I mean, it's this game lasts almost five hours. I can't imagine I was. Um, <laughs> Although there was lots of, cha- I, I'm sure I got excited every time they one team or the other got close to scoring, which happened a bunch in extra innings. They just didn't ever do it. Oh, this is a low scoring game, though. Otherwise, it turns out. But, but don't worry okay. about it. It's about the 14th, and here yeah. come here come the Cubs. Uh, Rod Scurry in his like ninth inning of relief. DeJesus singles. You're like, oh, we're in great shape, 
Oh, he tries to stretch it to a double. He's out. Omar Marino throws him out. Jesus Christ. One out. With... Steve Henderson walks. Bill Buckner singles. Henderson goes to third. So that actually had Evanda Jesus simply stayed on first base. The Cubs win. Instead, there's runners at first and third. And there's uh, one out for Bobby Bonds. He hits a grounder to third. Steve Henderson's coming home. For the winning run. Yes, and he's out. Buckner Buckner's on second. Jerry Morales with two on and two outs. There was Dale Barra, by the way, with the with the assist. No, oh, yeah, heady, the heady bit Dale Barra with a right. nose full of coke. Right to um, a catcher that wasn't his dad. So dad's like, all right, we gotta go. Pack your shit up. They're gonna play forever. Right, right. We gotta go. We gotta pick up your ma. So we we trundle out. It doesn't take too long to get to the car because um, you know it's. Well, it's a day game, right? You're probably parked like right, <laughs> right at right at Waveland and Clark, basically, or like right at like we had two wheels up on, the, up on the curb, right, right by the marquee for the entire game. Right, exactly. Randy Martz still pitching for the Cubs. Uh, he gets he go the, the Pirates go down one, two, three. Randy Martz, he's showing some stuff for the future, guys. We're getting excited here. Hold on. And poor Rod Scurry still in for the still in for the Pirates. We are. Uh, we can hear the crowd. What's well, left of the crowd in quotes? But we can hear people getting excited in Wrigley. Jody Davis yep. has led off with a single. Um, Ty Waller has singled. Jody, of course, goes to second because he can't make it all the way to third. And I remember this. At least I remember. At least I've been told this. We open the doors on the car. Dad starts the car. And we hear Vince Lloyd as Steve Dillard hits a ground ball to Phil Garner at second base. And Phil throws it away. And Jody Davis comes around to score the winning run. And so the first Cup game I ever went to, I didn't get to stick around for the very end, and they won. But I got no, to, but it did, I got to it kind did, of it, hear it. I got to hear Vince talk about right. it. And we could hear like the last four hundred people go, "Yeah!" Well, and there's still excitement. You're in the car, and you're like, "All right, we're out of there." It was yeah. a great day. You know, you didn't see it, but like you were still there. Uh, eerily similar to my the not not necessarily my first game, but the first game I remember the year before when Bill Russell threw away a ball, which would have been a little bit different because it was a lead changing uh, situation. But yeah, kind of a thrilling uh, finish. Both. Uh, another thing that both of our first games had in common, really shitty Cubs teams that, 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 that pulled off that both pulled off a walk-off win against a team that had won the world series two years prior. How about that? Mm, there you go. Yeah. That's uh that's, that's I'm sure what a lot of our listeners are coming here for some oddball uh, facts like that. I would guess that that was the loss that broke the pirate spirit. Yep. Because they, they were, were that dropped them below five hundred to twenty six and twenty seven. Much like the eighty six Cubs, I think the eighty one Pirates were just. I get, Willie Stargell did not even get into this game, but I'm pretty sure he was rostered. He might have just disappeared at some point during that season. It was they were a shell of what remains their last World Series championship. So you know, I wanted to just if we could, I think we. I don't know how much we've gone here. If we've wasted another ninety minutes on a shitty team, but. Um, you mentioned Vince Lloyd and then the broadcast, and I 
giving some thought to it today because we've covered 80 and 82. So what happens between 80 and 82 is 81 is the final season of Jack Brickhouse. And I don't know how much we actually dove into this. We've made allusions to the dynamics in play in the Cubs broadcast booth. But, you know, a lot of our experience isn't just isn't just the team, but it's also it's also the people that tell us about the team and the play-by-play guys. And so, like, in 81, you know, this is like the 40th year of Jack Brickhouse. And, you know, we're, we're, you're talking about a Pirates game. Of course, uh, Milo Hamilton, I believe, was the Pirates broadcaster through their 79 World Series championship team, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and the Cubs hired him ostensibly to uh, basically succeed Jack Brickhouse. Milo himself had, you know, been this weird baseball play-by-play lifer for 20 or 30 years. I don't know. He'd done Braves games maybe, but definitely he was coming off of the Pirates coincidentally enough. And nothing was in writing, of course. And of course, the fact that the Tribune company hired Milo and that things would pretty much change by the time Brickhouse actually retired. uh, The gentleman's understanding was that, uh, that when Jack Brickhouse would ride off into his golden shower sunset and, you know, be a hero and disappear that Milo would step in and secure his own hall of fame credentials and get to do the Cubs or what on this kind of nascent new superstation that they have and bouncing back and forth between the radio. Uh, he was going to be the guy. And so I think, I think the arrangement typically was in 81 is that Milo and Jack both did the color. I don't think there was like a color guy in the broadcast booth, but then Jack would go over to the radio and Milo would do play-by-play. Lou Boudreau might come over, but it was all set up and this sort of stale Tribune ownership that was in place was pretty much not going to stand in the way. Jack Brickhouse is going to retire. Milo is going to be the guy. And then a couple things happen. Number one, Tribune Company or I'm sorry, the Wrigley family sells the Cubs to the tribute company midway through the 81 season. So they don't quite have necessarily have the same agenda. But another thing that happened was that the White Sox, who had themselves been acquired, I believe for the third time when Bill Veck was forced to sell the team, but he sold it to these two guys, uh, not from Chicago, but had uh, plenty of interest in, in, in owning a team. Uh, one was Jerry Reinsdorf, of course, who we all know too well today. The other was Eddie Einhorn. And really, what I remember in the early days of this new White Sox ownership was Eddie Einhorn was more of the face of the White Sox than Reinsdorf. It wasn't until years later that Reinsdorf sort of assumed more dominant control. But Reinsdorf was a real estate guy that just made a lot of money, whatever ventures he had. Eddie Einhorn was a cable TV guy. Like uh, one of early innovations was broadcasting the epic uh, Houston uh, Cougars UCLA Bruins match between Elvin Hayes and Lou Cinder that was on some sort of a cable television thing and he was like you know read some article about that like not too long ago where you know Einhorn's like still selling ads of the, as the game is going on because it was an epic game and he was one of these TV pine, sports TV pioneers but he was really the face. Uh, that's where he made his money. But he was really the face of the White Sox when they first bought the team. And one of their first moves, uh, and this is the second thing, uh, independent of the Tribune Company buying the Cubs and, and just changing you know, the, the stability, was that Eddie Einhorn, uh, one of their plans was to take the Sox uh, into private cable uh, broadcasting. Up until that point, the Cubs, of course, had been on WGN forever. They're on Channel 9 TV. They're on WGN radio. Uh, the cable television was was expanding. The Cubs were very well situated. 
The White Sox, though, they were on VHF. They were on Channel 44 in Chicago. You probably couldn't get a White Sox game in Rockford nope. uh, growing up. It was a Chicago. Oh, it was only a six-county region uh, around the Chicago land, and it was on VHF. And um, and you know, probably not even all their games were even broadcast. I think. I mean, I couldn't tell you from experience because I was so young. But it was around the time that you know we had some sort of a, a pre-configured taste of cable in Chicago with, with what was called on TV, which basically took over Channel Forty Four WSNS, which the Sox were broadcast on. Kind of forced the Sox off of that. So I think in the eighty-one season, Harry Carey and crew and Jimmy Pearsall uh, were doing a lot of games on W. GN. They were actually sharing time, which was kind of odd because the Sox are usually independent of the Cubs. But while that was getting worked out in the 81 season, Eddie Einhorn and Jerry Reinsdorf uh, configured a whole cable sports conglomerate, including the other uh, sports franchises in Chicago, the Bulls and the Blackhawks, to put the games on cable television. And in doing so, Alien and maybe this is just a narrative or maybe there's a, a convenience or maybe Harry was just being strategic, but it allowed for the opportunity for Harry Carey, who had been doing White Sox games on channel 44 for 10 years to really endear himself with as being a man of the people and stand up to this sort of money grab and say, that's ridiculous. You're putting games on pay cable. This is bullshit. Harry made a lot of noise. Suddenly an opportunity is created. And regardless of what the Wrigley family had may or may not have promised, Milo Hamilton, uh, this situation sort of opened up where after the 81 season, uh, when Jack Brickhouse steps out, steps away, Milo Hamilton steps forward and falls through a hole and is replaced essentially by Harry Carey. And I just think it's funny. We could talk about it more when we do discuss 83, 84. Uh, they actually had to work together for three seasons, but it was, it's really an interesting thing that Milo Hamilton in the 81 Cubs season from a fan's perspective, watching all of these games on WGN TV is basically the heir apparent to Jack Brickhouse and my, how things would change about six months after that. So would you like to hear the uh, peripatetic uh, career of Milo Hamilton baseball? Let's listen to it. Let's listen to it live. He got his first MLB job in 1953, announcing for the St. Louis Browns. So he's about as old as Harry. Whoa, he goes back to Harry. There's an origin story. Harry's across town. Well, they work together because. Or no, I'm in the same ballpark, actually. I'm sorry. When When the Browns left for Baltimore, Milo didn't go. Instead, he moved to the Cardinals, where he worked with Harry Carey and Jack Buck during the 1954 season. Okay. However, he was let go that year after the 54 season because <laughs> they wanted to open a spot for Joe Garagiola. We can't argue with that. He was... Former player, St. Louis uh, native. Yeah. So where do you think Milo went next? He went to the Cubs. Where he oh, that's with right. Jack Brickhouse and Vince Lloyd. And after three years, he was let go because PK hired Lou Boudreau. Okay. So wow, Milo, I forgot the, about I Milo forgot the about cockroach as he was. He didn't leave Chicago. He worked with Bob Elson with the White Sox for one season. Okay. No, actually for more than one season. Because in uh, 1966, the Braves moved to Atlanta and Milo got hired to be their play-by-play announcer. That's where he finally got some stability. Um and he worked with for himself. Ernie Johnson Sr. And everybody knows Ernie Johnson Jr. because he hosts. I remember Ernie Johnson Sr. Yep. 
because I'm old. Oh yeah, he was doing well. He was doing TBS games when we were kids. And he may have he may have been around the Hank Aaron home run off of Al Downing. I'm guessing. But it's did he not go to the Pirates or is that a miss? Is no, no, no. He's going to get there. He's we got okay. a lot of moves still from Al. Okay, but he joins the the Braves in Atlanta or Milwaukee. No, he goes to Atlanta. He never worked in okay. Milwaukee. When they went to Atlanta, he went. He was their first announcer in Atlanta. Okay. Um, Making a name for himself. Yeah, and he very famously, he probably has the most famous call of uh, Aaron's 715th home run. He's the... Because Scully, Scully has a call of it because right. he was the visiting broadcaster. Right. He's the... Milo's the... He's sitting on 714. And then the okay. next pitch, it's gone. Good for Milo. Um, At what point does... Uh, does past and future nemesis Harry Carey's son uh, mm. Skip join him in the Atlanta Braves booth? I'm wondering. Because <laughs> Harry's son was doing games by the mid-70s for the Braves, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. I wonder when Skip. Uh, oh, here it goes. Um, let's see. He uh... <laughs> The Braves did not draw good attendance. Uh, from 71 to 75, with poor, several poor to mediocre seasons, Milo criticized poor attendance on the air. And Braves owners fired him after the 1975 season. Shortly thereafter, the team was sold to Ted Turner, who made the Braves a national phenomenon. Wow! With Hamilton's Jesus. replacements. <laughs> He's late. He's Skip missing Terry two. And Pete Van Weer. Oh, my God. I cannot even wrap my brain around the fact that Milo missed two Superstation buses as they were boarding. Uh, meanwhile, wow. in St. Louis, Jack Buck had agreed he was leaving the Cardinals for NBC to host a show called Grandstand. So it's no This Week in Baseball. I don't Milo pulled out when he found out that Buck had it written into his contract that he could meet, he could return to the Cardinals at any time if Grandstand failed, which it did. So Milo instead okay. took a job with the Pirates in 1976, succeeding Bob Prince. Um, he was not popular in Pittsburgh because the fans missed Bob Prince and Milo's prick. <laughs> this is great. This is just great. Um, so, uh, but he was there through, um, he was there through 79. 79. Yep. And he, uh, so he got the broadcast. I don't know if it was on TV or radio or if he was in the radio booth during the Orioles world series, but yeah, he did get himself a world series team. Before so, it being this is what it says. Unhappy in Pittsburgh, Milo jumped at a chance to return to Chicago in 1980 to join the Cubs broadcast team alongside Brickhouse, Lloyd, and Boudreaux. He was under the impression he was heir apparent to Brickhouse upon the latter's retirement. Uh, instead, he later said he had been guaranteed in blood that he would replace Brickhouse on Cubs television broadcast in 1982. Uh, as we <laughs> know, blood? Uh, that blood ended up uh, not coming because Harry Carey came. Um, wow. Milo's contract ran out in 1984, and he was not renewed. And Milo blamed Harry. Eh, whatever they didn't need you. They had but, but they like, had a full they had full booths. They didn't need you. Well, you know the thing is, I, I'm still blown away. But and I, we we lived through it. But they worked together because I remember hearing like there'd be confrontations when like Harry would because at one point. I think they changed it up where Milo went to the radio. I, I, I can't figure out how it all worked, but like supposedly there were a couple of confrontations on the catwalk oh, between booths and stuff, but they actually worked together for three seasons. And I, it's just, you know, Harry didn't give a shit, you know? <laughs> it's like, 
I'm just I I feel like there's a screenplay that you could write about Milo Hamilton, like always running into these dead ends or these fateful like crossroads. Just the the whole being outspoken with a shitty Braves team, and then right before Ted Turner makes them a national brand. And then he has another chance at maybe being nationally known on WGN when things are taking off there. Yeah, gets, and then you know, he, he misses out on one superstation and then has, and basically is shoved off the other one by oh my. Harry. But it also sounds like he's an, he, like a lot, a lot of these steps. It's not like he's the, uh, he's not like he's uh Job from the Bible. It's not like he's this poor suffering, innocent fool. Like sounds like he's an asshole. Like he's uh, some of these problems are a little bit, uh, you know, self uh, generated. Yeah. I don't know. I've always, I always thought even as a kid that Milo was a prick. Um, yeah. Holy Toledo. That was the, that's yeah. the Milo Hamilton call. And then he also did a advertisement for true link fence where he had his yellow WGN blazer on. And he's like, they, they, they show a clip from a Cubs game in which somebody hit one onto Waveland. And he'd point out that's a true link fence. <laughs> Apparently true link had the fences uh, in Wrigley field. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Milo told, and his, after he left uh, the Cubs, he told the writer, Kurt Smith, that officials at WGN spent an hour praising him, but told him they had to dismiss him because Harry didn't like him, and Harry was more important to the Cubs. <laughs> well, but he went to Houston after yes. that, and the Cubs got Dwayne Stats, who I think we always enjoyed Dwayne. Yeah. He was the nice, great was call. Good. Dwayne, Dwayne left games. to go to the Yankees, which seemed like a great yes. job. And then Steinbrenner decided Trump. he didn't like him. And uh, so he wasn't there for very long, but then he ended up, he's been in Tampa forever. He's still there. Still is. Uh, the sad part about Dwayne leaving, by the way, we could revisit it. It was that it rendered us Tom Brenneman yes. as a Cubs announcer, Ooh. but it went Milo Hamilton, Dwayne stats, Tom Brenneman. Uh, but Dwayne, uh, Milo went to Houston. He kind of swapped with Dwayne, I think. And he did actually get into the hall of fame, even though yes. he really had to labor and, and, and suffer a lot of indignities <laughs> through the way. Milo went, Milo went to Houston in 85. He became their primary announcer in 87, and he held that job until his retirement in 2012. And he, got, okay. he won the uh, Ford Frick Award in 1992, which I don't – they give that award to people that don't deserve it, like Hawk Harrelson. So. Yeah, yeah. What I so. remember about Milo um, was that he gave the time a lot. And he continued really? to do it even in Houston when it's like, okay, buddy, everybody, if you're in your car, everybody has a, everybody can see the time in their car now. This isn't 1964. Right. right. You don't have to tell us that it's, you know, it's 2.15. Um, we know what time it is. Just stop it. So that's one of the things I remember about. And I forget that he really was a contemporary of Harry's. He goes back. I mean, God, he had this earlier life briefly in the Cubs universe of PK Wrigley in the fifties. It's, God, if... Yeah, he was born in he was born in 1927. God, he really was old. Harry I, was he, born in 1914. Yeah, well, so Harry is a bit older. It's funny, but... nobody really knows how old uh, the Harry's birth year was always in dispute. Because he was an orphan. Mm-hmm. Harry Carabina. <laughs> I love that. I just I love the added the added measure of, of Skip Carey, who was nothing special as a play by play guy, but whatever, like benefits from the TBS. That could that totally could have been Milo if he didn't have a big fucking mouth and have to shit on the fans. I uh <laughs> <laughs> just 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember how the rotation worked either because in my mind it was always Vincent Liu did um, – well, Liu did all nine innings on radio. Vince did the middle three on TV. Vince would come over, right. Yeah. Um, so it must have been when Milo was there. Milo must have like lurked in the radio booth, and then no, he did TV in the middle three when Milo was I, there. I think because when we did the '82 season, you found a link. Casey Ignarski has a pro, had procured the opening, the home opener that year against the Mets when Bill Buckner hit a homer. That's well, that one's different that, because there's no there's no Steve yet. Correct. That's what, that's what complicated. Came, that's right. That's right. So Steve, Steve came in '83. You had an analyst right. on both because Lou Correct. and. Um, that's right. Lou used to come over and do the middle three. So I think what they did, I think what they did in 82 was that Harry and Milo actually did innings one through three and seven through nine. And Milo stayed on TV the whole time yeah. and would do with Lou in the middle innings. That's, that's what I think they did. I'm going to say one thing now just Steve to wrap this up. up because I remember this in 1981. Uh, and I take my word for it or don't. But and this is probably because of the flux that was going on. But Lou Brock, uh, future Cardinal Hall of Famer, a former Cardinal player, obviously former Cub farmhand, uh, was trying to break into broadcasting. And the Cubs gave him a shot during the 81 season. So Lou Brock did a handful of Cubs games, I guarantee you. And I just remember, as politely as my dad could say, I just can't understand what Lou's saying. He just was not very uh, – he just had a difficult time enunciating and it just didn't really make for a very professional broadcast. So I do know that they they really wanted to give Lou Brock a shot at uh, getting that job, and they had plenty of opportunity. And maybe between the, the you know during the strike between the two portion schedules, they were like trying to you know talk him up. But I do remember that uh, Lou Brock was in the booth quite a bit, probably obviously with like Milo or Jack. I don't know, but he was some semblance of a color man. But you're right. In '82, they didn't have a Steve Stone. Harry did one year without him, and then Stone joins in '83. They still had Milo. And I think Milo. Somehow they forced Vince Lloyd out. I, it was never really the same from year to year until once Dwayne Stats got in. Then for a while it was like then the formula was set. That yeah, Dwayne, you, knew, you understood it. It was you knew Dwayne it. would start on the radio and come over. Dwayne, so it was, but it wasn't always like that prior to then. Yeah, and the and the middle three were always when Steve would work in his tortured puns on people's Correct. names, like his long story about Lance McCullers. He told the story about this coat that had been in the McCullers family forever, and he went on and on and on. And the payoff was it was the coat of many McCullers. Right, right. And Dwayne Her- groaned you know, the appropriate. Right. And then um, Harry would or Arnie started doing his lake shots. We see the the, the clock at the Waveland Golf Course and stuff. It would show like you could see like the boats yeah. out there. You see the clock tower at the Waveland Golf Course, right? Or you know, water shots, not hat shots. Hat shots and other things that they would shoot. That was more of a Harry production. Harry and Arnie production. All right. Well, I think that's. I think that's about all we can squeeze out of the uh, the 81 cup. It's <laughs> a lot of shit to squeeze in one sock. I think, uh, yeah, I don't think we left anything, uh, any stone unturned there. Nope. 
And if we did, I apologize. All right. But, yeah, end of an era. Dallas Green comes in. That's it. So we close the chapter on a really dark point. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Strike came just in time. Gave Cub fans two months off in the middle of a and terrible season. 13 years before history would repeat itself. Yes. All right. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Andy. Look forward to the next one. Many of us have herpes. 